Welcome to this presentation from the Downey Seventh-day Adventist Church. We are located in the greater Los Angeles area at 9820 Lakewood Boulevard in Downey, California. We would love to have you worship with us any Saturday you are in our area. So good to see you all, and as well to our visitors, thank you for joining us today. We are honored and blessed that you have chosen to worship with us today. Uh, please consider this your home. You're welcome anytime. Let's go ahead and begin with the word of prayer. God, today we begin a new series from the Old Testament, books that we really don't talk about much. So Lord, help us open our hearts and our minds as we turn to them and, Lord, what lessons we can glean from them. In Jesus' name, amen. So many years ago, when Lisa and I first got married, we lived in a very small apartment. The kitchen was also very small. Now, um, I started to cook, to learning to really want to cook and of course, I was watching the Food Network, and the illustrious Guy Fieri had a recipe that looked amazing. Onion rings. I'm connoisseur of fried foods, and it looked amazing. And so I thought, hey, let me try to make that. So I went, got all the ingredients, and I came home. I turned uh, the pot on with uh, a lot of oil, <laughs> made sure it came up to 350 degrees, and then I, I battered uh, the onion rings with uh, panko bread crumbs, so it had that extra crunch. And then also the, the egg mixture with the flour as well. And I started to put the onion rings into the pot. And everything was going great until I heard something like this. Okay, this is not working out. All right. I got scared there for a second. I thought I was going to have to pull the battery out. <laughs> this is not planned. Yay. So, how many of you have ever experienced wanting to make something and all of a sudden said alarm goes off? Amen? All right. Half, not even half of you. All right, you're better cooks than us. Now, what's the purpose of the alarm? To make sure that your house doesn't burn down, right? Now, of course, I had most of the control in the kitchen where I couldn't control the smoke, so I had to throw open the window so all the smoke would go in, and, uh, I mean, go out, not in, out. And the problem, though, is, you know, these alarms, when you lived in confined spaces, are they easily heard by other tenants, your neighbors upstairs about hope? Yes. How many of you find that you love that sound? How many of you hate that sound? All right, we got more hands, right? Ultimately, this serves as an alarm, as a wake-up call to, hey, man, things are not right. You need to fix what's going on. So obviously, you know, I, I turn the heat down, 
and I started to put less onion rings in and it caused it to where the smoke would not be so high. It serves as a warning. And so we find here in the book of Joel, okay, let's go to Joel chapter one. Joel chapter one. And in the book of Joel, we find, okay, I'm gonna take this out because it's being temperamental. I need to remember to take that back home because I still got to put it back up on the wall. We find that Joel chapter one, we find who is Joel? Well, Joel, his name means Yahweh is God. And in Joel chapter one, well, just Joel period, uh, it's, it's found in a series of books called the Minor Prophets. There are 12 small prophets uh, you'll, some other names that you'll find is Hosea, Amos, uh, Jonah, Obadiah, which we'll, we're going to study at the end of the uh, month, Micah, Malachi. But <clears throat> we don't really know much about Joel. Uh, we do know that his name, his dad's name is Pethuel. He probably comes from uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. He mentions it also, I believe, Jerusalem. One of the things about Joel is he's also a very excellent writer. He's very uh, descriptive. He's able to, as he writes, uh, bring these uh, amazing visuals that we can think about. Uh, he's familiar with the temple and its services. We don't know exactly when Joel was written, anywhere probably from about 800 to 400 BC. But we also know that uh, Joel also was aware of some other prophets, such as Isaiah, because he quotes them. Now, the kingdom here is facing a crisis of a locust plague, as we're initially going to read. And it's a big, big uh, situation. So let's go there. And we're, oh boy, that's 12 minutes. <laughs> we're going to read really quickly. The word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Bethuel, an invasion of locusts. Hear this, you elders. Listen to all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. When the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. When that, what the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips." A mighty na a nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of the lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. So it sounds like a pretty grim picture. Amen? The whole land is destroyed. Uh, it, Joel also uh, talks about, he gives visuals of, for instance, in verse 8, mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, and the olive oil fails. So all of the agriculture, their dependence on being able to make money, to have food, is instantly wiped out. This nation is in trouble because they have they don't have the means to survive, to feed the animals, to grow wheat, to harvest, to trade. 
all economic prosperity is out the door. Now, what next? In verse 13, Joel writes, Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Well, you who minister before the altar, come spend the night in sackcloth, who minister before my God, for the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Essentially, it's a call to lament or repentance. Now, it also is interesting in Joel. Joel does not describe or indicate what the people have done wrong. But if you look through the Old Testament, you know that Israel and the people of God have not always acted well, right? For instance, um, have they made uh, false gods? As they came out of Egypt, what did Aaron and all the other people make? A, a, A golden calf, right? Now, there's other times where it mentions in Scripture where they were actually uh, doing, they were harming one another and they were trying to sell each other off. Uh, and just it seems like there's this recurring pattern that God's people would be good. They would fall into uh, to sin. God had to remind them, hey, I am still your God. Everything will be kosher. And it was just this up and down battle, right? Well, it comes at this point where... For whatever reason, the people have been bad, and God has to call in and remind them, hey, I have called you to be a faithful people. You are my people. And he's saying here, what you have done is bad. There's a locust plague that has come in and destroyed everything. And and, uh, in fact, even it says here in verse 16, has not the food been cut off before our very eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? So imagine now. Everything around you, the agriculture, your ability to survive is completely wiped out. The cattle, in verse 18, moan. The herds mill about because there is no pasture. The cows cannot eat. And eventually, if they can't eat, what's going to happen? They die. So, quite, <coughs> quite the scene. So, what can we take from this? Well, the land has been devastated beyond repair. What does this mean for everybody? The crops are barren. The economic impact is untold. They have no ability to make money. But I, you know, I'd never thought of this before until this week. If there are no cows and there are no animals, when they go to the temple, what are they not able to do? No sacrifices. So it's not just a financial, it's not just a physical impact. It's a spiritual impact on the people. Pretty heavy, amen? All right. And not only that, it's just not a few people who suffer from this. Everyone suffers from this catastrophe, from this plague. There could have been a few people who were faithful, but yet even then, as a group, it impacts. Sometimes when we make mistakes... It doesn't just affect us, it affects everybody. So, verses 13 to 20, at the heart of this is God is seeking repentance from the people. God is desiring that these people recognize their mistakes to take ownership. Now, let's go to chapter 2. Okay, let's just briefly go over there. There's now, this was in the past. This this had just happened. But there's also now another impending uh, situation, another calamity that is brewing. Uh, actually, another army of locusts. And in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, 
blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill, that all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming and it is close at hand. And this is also a theme in the book of Joel, the day of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, uh, the day of the Lord, it's essentially God's sovereign universal rule of, of goodness. And sometimes in some cases, uh, <laughs> impending doom is coming. And in this case, there is an army, another army of locusts. Uh, one could say it could be another nation, uh, signifying it could have been probably Babylon, that they were going to come forth. So God is basically saying, you guys have been misbehaved, and I basically, I needed to get your attention. Now, now that I have your attention, there is another impending calamity coming. Please get your act together. And in, in, in verse 2, it says, Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of cloudness and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, and a large and mighty army comes such as never was in the ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before the fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is the Garden of Eden. Behind them a desert waste, nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry with, cavalry, with the noise like that of chariots. They leap over the mountains like the crackling fire, consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. Can you imagine being faced with a big, huge army coming and bearing down at you? Would you not be scared? Especially if they got horses, the cavalry. And they're great warriors. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line. they not swerving from their course. They don't jostle each other. They are orderly. Impending doom. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves and enter the windows. Before the earth shakes, the heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened. The stars shine no longer. The Lord thunders at the head of this army. All of a sudden, the flip scripts in God is bringing this army into the land. The Lord thunders at the head of the army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? So, this is a second scene in the book of Joel. There are four scenes. And then Joel writes something here. That's very important. Even now, declares the Lord, it says, God's giving an opportunity, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. And the Old Testament essentially is, turn from your ways, come to me in humility and in repentance. And in verse 13, especially says, rend your heart and not your garments. Now, in the past, in the Bible, Old Testament, when somebody did something wrong or they were in mourning, they would tear their garments. But here it says, don't, uh, not necessarily do that, but rend your heart. And anybody know what rend means? I had to look this up. Surrender, to tear your heart open, to examine, to look upon what you have been doing and ultimately be accountable for the choices that you have made, especially the bad choices. He says, return to the Lord your God. And this is the beautiful thing where it says, for he is gracious and compassionate. This is verse 13. Slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. 
So even in this picture of this, this impending calamity, God says, look, I want you to return to me, but you have to walk away from your bad choices, from your sin and, and everything that you're holding on to because it is taking it away from me. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. And Joel is saying, hey, get everybody together. Bring the elders. Gather the children. And like a bridegroom, leave his room and let the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep before the portico and altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why among, who should they say among the peoples? Where is their God. Now, God is, is there, but God is calling them to turn away from whatever they were doing at that time. God is calling them to be a faithful people, to be obedient, to follow what God has called them to do, as, as we read as well, to, to, to be reminded of the words that was shared to the people, to live them out, to have God be their sovereign and only God. So God has called this people to please come back, walk away from your bad ways and return to me and to be faithful. Now we see here that this is kind of a, it's a negative, scary picture, right? But yet, as we will read next week, and especially God is going to, the people will find salvation and not just that, but the Holy Spirit. And then finally in chapter three, Bill's going to talk about God restoring the land. So while it seems bleak, there is hope as we will uh, learn more next week and also the following week. But what are some of the takeaways that we can take from this story so far? God desires that we be in relationship with God, but also to be faithful to God. You know, the last couple of years have kind of, and in many respects, been a wake-up call. We've, We've learned a lot of things about ourselves and others and Things that we thought were true were not so. And yet, for some, it's been an opportunity to be able to draw close to the Lord. And yet, even doing so lately, it seems like maybe perhaps are we becoming too comfortable still? When things start to get comfortable, it's easier to get complacent. In our relationship with God, we can never afford to be complacent. Amen? in the hard times, but especially the good times. Noted philosopher Soren Kierkegaard uh, t- brings an illustration where he talks about uh, a duck that was flying north with a, uh, a flock, a wild duck. And in the, the Danish countryside, there's a, a particular duck that was spotted by a barnyard where tame ducks, non-wild ducks live. And this duck dropped down He hung out with the ducks and he saw that there was fresh corn that he could easily go to and pick up and eat. And he stayed there a while and the hour turned into the day, turned into a week and then turned into a month. And then as uh, I believe it was uh, a fall crisp day, some wild ducks were flying overhead and instantly he, he, he reacted by wanting to fly away, but he'd become so tame He had all of the food that he could eat. His wings didn't operate as well because he had gained weight. He couldn't just pop up and fly away with the other wild ducks. So he just decided to stay there. 
Winter came. Spring came. He continued to eat and hang out with all of the tame ducks. But then overhead, he heard the wild call of the other ducks. And instinctively again, he would try to flap and try to join them. But then he gave up. He couldn't quite get there. It's okay. I'm comfortable. I still have all of this wild, all of this corn that I can eat. I can be content. I have my friends. Finally, again, in the fall the following year, the ducks were flying over, and the wild duck had become no more a wild duck, but a tamed duck. And as the ducks flew overhead, squawking, he did not even hear them. He'd become comfortable. And he said, you know what? My life here is safe. It's good. I will be okay. And he didn't even pay the slightest attention. My friends, God wants to be in relationship with you and wants to spend time with you. May we not become so complacent, but hear the voice of God at all times and to be faithful to God's teachings, to God's word. You know, today or tomorrow is going to be Mother's Day. I'm sure all of our moms at some point have maybe had a difficult time with uh, us as children. Amen? I thought it was going to be a little louder. <laughs> now, as children, we sometimes we can be intentionally bad, and sometimes we're just curious. And as a parent, sometimes, though, we have to be firm. And I see God in this picture not wanting to just be mean or punishing, but sometimes God had to get the attention of God's children. And sometimes that had to be very firm. Amen? And so when I look to the Old Testament, sometimes God can be seen as a vengeful, angry God. I think God is a loving God. And if God truly loved God's children, sometimes God had to be firm with God's children to remind them to come back I look back on all the times that I was disciplined. My mom wasn't trying to be mean. She just didn't want me to get hurt or go down the wrong path. And I think we sometimes forget that as children. And even in the children of, uh, children of God in Israel, they also sometimes got seduced by being, uh, they would see wonderful, great things supposedly, and yet it would turn them away from the most important thing. So God is calling them back, hey, please, Come back to me. Be accountable. So, reflection. Where in your life do you need a wake-up call? Where in your life do you need a wake-up call? And whatever that wake-up call is, pray for and bring accountability to that which you struggle with. Might mean not only praying for, but maybe you may need to seek help of a professional, a friend, have somebody to help you be accountable. And that may God also seek the Lord every day. And actually, as well, maybe there's something that we need to pray for that God can work in our lives to remove that we may be made whole, but also continue to be faithful to the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, today... Uh, we've had to blitz through the first uh, third of our, our discussion here on Joel. But Lord, may we be reminded that 
Although, Lord, sometimes you can be firm, it's not that you're trying to punish us, Lord, but you're drawing us back to you because you love us. May we be faithful to you. Lord, if there is something in our lives that is negatively affecting us and also is not in alignment with your love and commands and priorities, Lord, help us to overcome that, to give that up, to surrender it to you. And Lord, if we need to find accountability or to have help, Lord, help us to get that. And as well, let's help us, Lord, to support one another. May we be the faithful ambassadors that you've called us to be. Lord, abide with us. Lord, we also know that you are a God who is rich in love. As we will uh, continue in our, our study, that will be certainly evident in that. But Lord, we also know as we, we, we read that you are a God who is slow to anger, who is gracious and compassionate. May we never forget that. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. May God bless you. As well, thank you, visitors, for joining us today. We'll see you all next week as we continue in our journey through the book of Joel. Take care.